We return again to the Gospel of Mark and we find ourselves in this ever escalating uh, and ever increasing of hostilities point in the narrative. Uh, and by that I mean we're now in the last few days of Jesus' life uh, before he heads to the cross. And you know from last Sunday we are now in that head-on collision stage. And if you're visiting with us this morning, we're working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. And so we invite you to join us and continue to gather with us as we journey through. We are now, as I said, at this stage where Jesus is having these head-on collisions with the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. They're exchanging back and forth. It didn't go well for the Jewish leaders last time, where we saw last week in verses 27 to 33 of Mark chapter 11, that they sought to attack Jesus and question him, and he messed them right up. He exposed their hypocrisy and we saw them answer dishonestly to the question, was John the Baptist from God or from man when he said that Jesus was the Messiah? They said, we do not know when they knew full well that John was a prophet. And they didn't want to acknowledge that because of the fear of the people. So they answer with a lie. And that kind of back and forth question with a counter question uh, is what's going on here. It's what will be front and center for the next little while as we walk through this gospel. There'll be an, an intensity. There'll be an hostility. And so prepare for that. And if you haven't already, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. And I want you, in light of the fact that there'll be this intensity and hostility and this constant questioning of Jesus, I want you to take just a peek ahead to verse 34 of Mark chapter 12 and look at the very end of that verse it says there after that no one would venture to ask him any more questions <laughs> they come in waves time and time again and it'll get a little intense but as we see there at the end of verse 34 Jesus wins the argument not only does he win the argument he wins the war and uh, just to get some altitude, our passage this morning will be verses 1 through 12 of chapter 12. But before we dive right into the text, by way of reminder, Jesus, after having served out in Galilee in the wider region, performing miracles, validating that he is indeed the Messiah, showing compassion, he has now arrived as king into Jerusalem He's gone inside the temple. We've seen that over the past few weeks. He has the 12 with him. 11 of them are converted. One is a son of the devil. And this portion that we presently find ourselves in of this intense conflict with the religious leaders, that is chapter 11, verse 27, and it runs all the way through to verse 44 of chapter 12, is a series of questions that come Jesus' way from his enemies. And we also see his responses to those questions. And we saw the first of those last week, where the Sanhedrin, who are the most elite people, in the nation of Israel, the leaders who rule and reign, they are in apostasy nonetheless. They ask Jesus quite provocatively, by what authority do you act this way? Or who, who gave you authority to do such things? And they didn't answer honestly. So Jesus didn't answer them. They have at their very core to kill Jesus. 
they want him out of the way they he, because he was messing up their plans you remember they feared that the nation would be taken away from them that their life of comfort and ease would be taken away they loved did they not the chief seats in the synagogue and the seats of prominence at the banquets and so they're coming in waves of attack upon our lord and it's not just that he might be sidelined it's so that he would be killed And as I said, our passage this morning is Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And I want you to know that it is a direct continuation of the conversation last week. Turn with me if you haven't already, and we'll read Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12 together. And he, that's Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent them another slave. And they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another. And that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him. And yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Let's pray. Father, I come before you in the name of this son, your son, the precious Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to continue to worship you in a, in a way that we pray is pleasing to you, where we confess our sin and we acknowledge our great need for you that we sing out of treasuring you songs of praise and so father this hour would you use this time in a mighty mighty way would you help us please because we so desperately need your help in jesus name amen well as i said this is a direct continuation of the conversation that was taking place there may be a chapter break but there is literally no break verse 33 answering jesus they said we do not know and jesus said to them nor will i tell you by what authority i do these things but i'll tell you a parable and here it is it's just a direct continuation jesus continues on speaking he's inside the temple to the sanhedrin who want him dead who he just exposed in front of the watching world, as it were, of Passover pilgrims. He exposed them as those who feared man and lied to God. And so we pick up in that encounter. We see there in verse 1 that Mark explains 
the way in which Jesus now takes the conversation. He speaks to them in parables. We've seen parables already in Mark. But again, what is a parable? A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Or more specifically, a type of fictional story that contains analogies that have one great spiritual point. And so when we study parables, what we are seeing from Jesus is a linguistic device, a homiletical tool that is used alongside the truth that he is trying to teach so as to unfold a significant spiritual truth and a reality in the life. So think of a parable as truth that comes alongside. In fact, the word parable comes from the word para, like parallel, means to come alongside, and the word bolo, which means to throw. So parable means to throw alongside. And Jesus spoke in parables often. And parables often have a twofold purpose. Number one, to deepen the understanding of the people. And also, number two, grasp this, to obscure truth from those who reject him. Jesus was asked by the 12 in Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, why do you speak in parables? Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered and says, I I spoke to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And so there is this judgment aspect of parables. You recall earlier from Mark that Jesus would speak in parables publicly, but then he would explain to the 12 the meaning of those parables privately. That's the normal arrangement of parables. But this parable here in our passage this morning is a little different than normal. In fact, in my study this week, I pulled off my copy of Parables, a book called Parables, off my shelf looking for some gold on this parable. And it's just simply not in there. This parable is not in there. You see, with other parables, all the tiny details of it matter. Uh, Sorry, they don't matter. They do not matter. The parable just has a lot of details and they really have no significance at all. It means little to nothing. But with this one... Each of those little details are significant. Other parables obscure truth. This one certainly does not obscure truth. The message is clear. So clear, as we just read, that at the end of it, the religious elite of Israel knew full well that this parable was about them. You see... Jesus had just had his authority questioned, right, prior. And now, in the same conversation, he dives right into a parable where authority is both exercised and rejected. Namely, if you think about it, the owner of the vineyard has the authority over that vineyard. But he's treated with contempt, murderous violence is the result. The title of the message this morning is Violence in the Vineyard. And so that's what we're looking at here. I have three simple headings for you this morning. I want you to see first, number one, we'll see the parable in verses one through nine. We'll, We'll look at that where Jesus actually tells the parable. We'll see number two, the point in verses 10 through 11, where the, where Basically, the summation, the actual point of all that's going on here is given. And then lastly, we'll see the provocation where the response to the parable 
is seen. And so let's get right underway. I want you to see first, number one, the parable in verses one through nine. Look at verse one. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower. The one thing Jesus often did was take common surroundings in the area or matters of significance and take those and use those in his parables. The same is here in this parable. The concept of a vineyard and all that a vineyard entails was something that the people here in this day were innately aware of. And so Jesus picks up on that. But more than that, he is directly quoting from a familiar Old Testament passage. If you have an NASB, you'll notice that it's capitalized. He's quoting from a very familiar passage. And I would love for you to turn there with me for a moment. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. And look at verse... One. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. This is Isaiah talking about Yahweh. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. And he also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. But it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its walls and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. (coughs) And the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. This Old Testament passage would have been innately known by the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests that make up the Sanhedrin. And there are certainly similarities between the words here in Isaiah and the parable in Mark. Jesus' words there in Mark. Obviously, both speak of a vineyard. Obviously, Jesus quotes it directly. but And obviously, both end in the downfall of the vineyard. Both obviously speak of judgment, yet I want you to see a stark difference between the two. You see, this here in Isaiah 5 is speaking about the lack of fruit in the lives of the people and the nation of Israel. Look at the end of verse 2 again. He expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Whereas Jesus' parable in Mark 
is focusing not on the fruit of the vineyard, but on the caretakers of the vineyard, the Sanhedrin, the men who are presently questioning him. So flick back over to Mark again. That's the difference. And it would be most fitting and most suitable now, if you haven't already grasped it, to unfold and to point out what the metaphors in this parable from Jesus actually mean. In our parable this morning, the landowner is God. The vine growers are the religious leaders of Israel. The slaves that are being sent and beaten and killed are all the prophets that God has sent to the nation of Israel. And so again, Jesus is no longer judging the people of Israel for their lack of fruit. He's already done that with the fig tree, nothing but leaves. And he cursed it and it was an illustration of the temple. He's already gone after the fact that they are fruitless. He is now condemning them because they lack faithfulness. Jesus is condemning those religious leaders who should be taking care of the vineyard of God. But they are not. Instead, they are beating and killing the slaves that are being sent to them. Look again at verse 2. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce from the vineyard from the vine growers. But they took him and beat him. Send him away. Verse 3. Oh, sorry, verse 4. Here comes the violence. And again, he, that's the landowner, sent another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. Verse 5, it's ramping up now. And he sent another one and that one they killed. So the first slave was beaten. The second one they cracked on the head and treated shamefully. The third servant, they then murder him in cold blood. Each of the slaves sent by the landowner were treated horribly, met with violence, met with murder. But look at the rest of verse 5. And with so many others beating some and killing others. I want you to understand that the landowner is not some kind of horrible person who is just throwing people headlong to death without a care. No, no, instead he is full of concern, full of care for these vine growers. He wants them to actually relent and repent of their mistreatment, not only of the vineyard itself, but of the slaves that are sent by the landowner. And all the landowner wants is for them to actually listen. For the first slave, just listen to him. Second slave, listen. Third slave, and so on and so forth. And hear the slave's message that they are speaking from the landowner. And in a powerful display of patience and love, this landowner just kept sending slaves to them one after the other in the hope that they would simply fulfill what was required of them that they would tend the vineyard properly and thereby provide the landowner with visible fruit from their labors you see the landowner he could have just come straight away shut it up close the place down kick them all out and but he doesn't but instead He hopes that they will listen. Yahweh, he sent prophet after prophet 
to Israel. And Israel's leaders killed them. Any survey shows the horror and the violence and the utter rejection of these vine growers, these Jewish religious leaders. God, the landowner, sent his prophets and they, the leaders of the nation of Israel, murdered them, treated them with contempt time and time again. Think about it. The prophet Jeremiah. He was falsely accused by them, thrown into a pit by them and stoned to death by them. The prophet Ezekiel was rejected by them and treated with contempt by them. The prophet Amos was forced to flee for his life. The prophet Zechariah was rejected wholesale by them. Micaiah was smashed in the face by them. The prophet John the Baptist had his head cut off by them. And the prophet Isaiah himself was sawn in two by them. But even in the sending of the prophets by Yahweh to Israel, the rejection was not without rebuke from God. And so I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 7 now. Jeremiah chapter 7. So even though Yahweh, the landowner, is sending slaves, his slaves, his prophets to the vine growers, the leaders of Israel. That rejection that was occurring was not without rebuke from God. Look at verse 23. But this is what I commanded them, saying, obey my voice. And I will be your God and you will be my people and you will walk in all the way which I commanded you that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants, slaves, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did more evil than their fathers. Verse 27, you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. And you shall call to them, but they will not answer you. Now flick over with me to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. Verse 28. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You appear to be a wonderful advocate of Yahweh, a wonderful vine grower. Woe to you, verse 22. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tomb of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. Now note this. Verse 28. Outwardly, 
You appear to be the ones who tend the vineyard, that is, the people of God, but actually you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, so lawless that you murder and maim the messengers of Yahweh, the Lord, the God that you claim to serve and whose people that you claim to minister to. But even more atrocious than that is the attitude of these present-day Sanhedrin, these ones that Jesus is exchanging with. They knew that their fathers had done great evil. They knew that. And yet they still joined with them in the evil. Look at verse 30, because this is what they say. If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets, Jesus said. Your dads did it. Verse 32. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. And look at this. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So there was always the rebuke in the midst of the rejection. Look at verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is going to be left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see to me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So in the midst of rejection was rebuke, both in the Old Testament and the New. And one of the first things that we can draw out from all of this, back to Mark now, one of the first, first things we can draw, from, draw out from this parable for each and every one of us here this morning is our God is a patient God. God's patience is evidenced both in the time span over which he sent these prophets and God's patience is also evidenced in the length of time where he withheld executing perfect judgment. Our God is so very patient with people. Even when God is met with hard-heartedness in in the individual life of any person who acts wickedly, rebels against him, he is still patient. I mean, when you think deep upon the patience of God displayed in your own life, it is literally staggering. The, Paul, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, 
not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who are persistent in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Our God is so incredibly patient. Not only in that regard, but also in his way he grows each and every one of us. God is so incredibly patient. We can be so thankful for his patience to us as we display the gift of knucklehead in moments in our life. God's patience is directly connected to his kindness, as we just read. And his kindness is directly linked to his love, as we'll see next in our parable. So if you haven't already, back to Mark chapter 12. After the landowner sent a plethora of servants, each of them beaten and murdered and maimed, his kindness and love and patience toward the wicked continues on with an ultimate act of love. Look at verse 6. He had one more to send. A beloved son. He sent him last of all. Saying they will respect my son. Surely. It's an ultimate act of love. Look at verse 7. But those vine growers... They said to one another, they had another hypocrite huddle and they reasoned among themselves. They said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. The landowner is God. The vineyard itself is the people of God. The vine growers are the religious leaders of Israel. The slaves that are sent are the prophets. All patient and all kindness. And now out of the, out of his love, the landowner sends, note the words back in verse six, a beloved son. No doubt, the Lord Jesus Christ. The son of God. They took him and they killed him. And you bet they did. I want you to see where they killed him too. Inside the vineyard. That is, inside Israel. John chapter 1 verse 11. Jesus came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. They certainly didn't receive him. They rejected him and murdered him, his own. 
He was murdered in his nation by his own people. And here's another thing I want to pull out for us here this morning. Yes, Jesus came to his own, the Jews. They did not receive him. These vine growers took that beloved son and killed him. But let me imply this for a moment. To fail to receive Jesus is more than simply just to reject Jesus. It is more than to rebel against Jesus. It is to partake in the murder of Jesus. Because if you do not receive Jesus, do not think for a moment that you would not do as these vine growers did. Because the same wicked heart of unbelief that beats, that beat in them, if you have not received Jesus, it is the same wicked heart that beats in you. And it was our heart too, as the people of God, before God changed our heart. By His grace and His grace alone. A heart that rejects the beloved son is a heart that murders the beloved son. The son of his love, the beloved one. This is my beloved son. Thundered God the father from the heavens. What will be the response of the landowner when you kill his beloved son whom he sent out of his abundant love? For your good. What will be the response? Look at verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do, says Jesus, to these vine growers who've killed the son? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Jesus is saying to these religious leaders by way of verse 9, there is going to be a transfer of leadership here in those who lead the people of God. I've already cursed and closed the temple, and now I am cursing you and shutting you out. And I'm going to establish a new way where there is a new humanity, where there is no more than just Jew who provide oversight to my people, but there are others, and they are Gentiles. And there will be one church with many local gatherings where shepherds will lead them and tend the new vineyard of God, the church of Jesus Christ. That's who the others is talking about in verse 9. So that's the parable. I want you to see next the point in verse 10 and 11, the point. Have you not even read this scripture? What Jesus is saying there is, You have read it. I know you've read it. This is not some surprise to you. Have you not even read this scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. And it's here that Jesus now drives home the point of the parable by moving from the allegory of a vineyard to that of a building. 
from farming grapes to framing walls, you could say. Jesus now, I want you to notice, he now applies the parable to himself. He is hammering home the concept of rejection of the Son. Jesus quotes directly here from Psalm 118, verse 22 to 23, which appears a number of times in the New Testament, clearly messianic. You know that the two most important components of building is to have a foundation that is strong. All the builders will say amen. And another important thing is to have all the angles correct and all the architects will say amen. The idea of being a cornerstone is that Christ is both the strength and the right angle. He is the strength of the foundation and everything that is correct. And so, as the Jewish religious leaders looked to Christ, instead of seeing, instead of seeing a stone of perfection, they saw one of imperfection. Instead of seeing one of adequacy, they saw one of total and utter inadequacy. Instead of seeing one as a holy stone... They saw one as an unholy stone. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4, please. I feel better than last week. Look at verse 8. Then Peter, Acts chapter 4 verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you. People of Israel, leaders of Israel, chief priests, rulers. But which became the chief cornerstone. Look at verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is one choice cornerstone, not two. Only one. There is only one way to God, not two. Turn with me now to Luke chapter 20. Back to Luke chapter 20. Look at verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone. Notice the previous verses. Jesus said to them, talks about the stone being rejected. Verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. I had to think about that for the week. And what, what is that talking about? Both, I was like, one is broken and, 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 and one is scattered like dust. 
Well, this is in the form of proverbial. It's a type of proverb. It's conveying the idea that judgment is for the one who rejects the stone. You fall on him or he falls on you. Either way, you reject him and he crushes you to dust. Back to Mark now. We're in verse 10 and 11. Jesus is saying the entire point of this parable. It's this. You have rejected the son. You have rejected the stone. The stone that God made the chief cornerstone. The stone that you looked upon and saw inadequacy and imperfection and unholiness. God took that stone and made it the chief cornerstone. And look at verse 11. This came about from the Lord. Who can thwart his plans? And it is marvelous in our eyes. What Jesus is saying here to them is that as the leaders of the nation of Israel, they were building from a faulty line using faulty stones. And God, the master builder, is going to take that and replace it with and reverse the entire building process and make Christ the chief cornerstone. And it is marvelous in our eyes. That's the greater purpose of all of this. The suffering servant is on his way to the cross. There is violence in the vineyard. But God will take it all and make it marvelous to behold. So that we've looked at the parable itself. We just saw the point. And now third and last, I want you to see the provocation in verse 12. And they were, seizing to, they were seeking to seize him. So in response to everything they've just heard, they were literally seizing to take him by force. And yet they feared the people. For they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Here is the response from the Sanhedrin, those religious leaders of Israel. I mentioned at the beginning that this parable was different to the others in the fact that other, most other parables obscure the truth. This one certainly does not do that. They understood that he spoke this parable against them. They knew full well that their forefathers had murdered the prophets. But as we saw earlier, Jesus indicted them for they would go about and say, if we were around, we wouldn't do that. But they did. And in just a few short days, they would. They would kill the son. They would be, no doubt, instrumental in stirring up the people to cry out, crucify him. They would have wandered around like leaven, stirring up the people, sowing discord among the people. This is their provocation here. This is their vexing and their venting. They knew that Jesus had condemned them by what he said. They knew he called himself God's son. They knew he spoke about them. And yet, at the end of verse 12, they left him and went away. 
no response. From all the truth that they had been exposed to, and they knew full well, and they lied and said, we do not know. No response other than ongoing hostility for just the next day they'll continue. You know, a couple of things I want to draw out from here. Number one, God's messengers, that is those who speak on His behalf when they open His book, they're nothing but slaves. Slaves of the one that they seek to feed. They're sent simply to do what God has called them to do, no matter the cost and no matter their lot. Too many ministers want honor and esteem at the city gates while their Lord was rejected and mistreated and killed outside of those city gates. We who bring the message of the Lord through the word of the Lord to the people of the Lord are to be slaves and not to be show ponies. They are to bring the book. Servants who labor in the word so as to feed the sheep and equip the sheep so that we can all go out into the world and tell people to no longer reject the son. Verse 6, the beloved son. Respect the son. We who open the book are not responsible for how the hearer responds. We are simply responsible to bring the word and beg you to follow and obey and glorify and respect the beloved son. Another thing I want to draw out from here, look at verse 1. A man, the landowner, God. God planted a vineyard and put a wall around it. God did that. God provided the vat. God provided the tower. How wonderful and how kind is our God to provide us abundantly. We have a kind God who gives us so much. We have much to be faithful stewards over. We have much to not neglect and we have much to be thankful for. Every believer lives with a safety hedge around them and a safety net below them. I want you to look up, back up to verse 7 for me. But those vine growers said to one another, what did they say? They said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And now look at the very last phrase. And the inheritance will be ours. Here's the heart of these Sanhedrin. And here is the heart of every unconverted individual. Here Jesus is unveiling the motive of the vine growers. Here it's unmasked. They treasured their own religiosity. And they treasured their corrupt vineyard more than they treasured the son and the landowner. They wanted to inherit the wealth and the honor of this world. They wanted glory for themselves instead of ascribing glory to the Son. They didn't want to treasure Christ because Christ took away their place of prestige and their comfort and their ease and called them to come and follow Him. And oh, how that is a lesson for each and every one of us here this morning, each and every heart beating here this morning. 
It was the Puritan Thomas Brooks who said, quote, A man can have enough of the world to sink him, but he can never have enough to satisfy him. To take hold of Jesus Christ, to delight in Him and to find lasting satisfaction in Him is to lay hold of treasure worth more than life itself. To fail to take hold of Christ. To fail to receive Christ. But instead cling to the things of this world that will never satisfy and never fulfill is to lose an inheritance worth more than life itself. Come to Jesus Christ. Cease the violence in the vineyard and find in him an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. The son calls for repentance and the son calls for you to follow him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as your people. Lord, your beloved son spoke this parable on this day. Every word. And the religious leaders of the nation of Israel and all those Passover pilgrims witnessed this. And we've just witnessed it. We've just heard it. How will we respond? I pray for any soul that is here this morning that is presently, continually crucifying the Son of God. Would you have them come and respect the Son? Would they come in this moment, in the quiet of their heart, and confess their sin and put their trust in the Son and find forgiveness from their sin. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. It is an immense privilege. Would you help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called by your grace? Thank you for the Son who willingly laid down his life for our sins. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.